You're listening to TIP. Hi there. Our guest today is Laura Gerritz, who's the founder, CEO, and chief investment officer of a firm called Rongio Global Advisors. Laura played a starring role in my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, where I wrote about her at some length in a chapter on high performance habits. Every time I speak with Laura, I'm reminded of what a fascinating and independent minded investor she is. As you'll hear in this conversation, She's constructed an extremely unusual life. Laura grew up in the American Midwest, and her investment firm is based in Salt Lake City, Utah, but she's become the most international of international investors. She tends to travel for about six to nine months a year, roaming widely in countries like India, China, Indonesia, the Philippines, Mexico, and Turkey. In all, she's traveled to something like 75 countries, returning to many of them again and again in search of great businesses at enticing valuations. Laura also has a home in Japan and she speaks Japanese. Intermittently, she plants herself for weeks on end in a city like Nairobi or Dubai or Amsterdam or Paris or Bangkok. And then she uses these places as hubs so she can travel around those regions more efficiently visiting companies and studying the local culture and economy. Everywhere she travels, she reads multiple books about that place, ranging from classic literature to mystery novels to economic history. One reason why I'm fascinated by Laura is that she's a wonderful example of what it means to be a continuous learning machine. Over many years, she's built a formidable competitive advantage through this combination of relentless travel, boots-on-the-ground research, and voracious reading. It helps that she also does an exceptionally rigorous screen twice a year of about 70,000 stocks, which helps her to identify which markets are undervalued and where she should travel in search of opportunity. All of this deep research has led Laura to believe that now is a particularly interesting time to consider investing more heavily in foreign stocks. As we discuss in this conversation, the best bet since 2010 has been simply to invest blindly in large U.S. tech stocks and ignore the rest of the world, especially emerging markets which have performed dismally. But as Howard Marks often points out, Investors should never forget that cycles eventually end and that the pendulum can suddenly swing dramatically in the opposite direction. Of course, the problem is that we never actually know when these cycles will end, so the timing can be really difficult. But I think it's worth paying attention when a smart, seasoned, disciplined and value-oriented investor like Laura tells you that she's seeing a great deal of opportunity in unloved foreign stocks after so many years in which they've been desperately out of favor. In any case, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast, where your host, William Green, interviews the world's greatest investors and explores how to win in markets and life. Hi, folks. It's a great pleasure to welcome today's guest, Laura Gerritz. Laura leads an investment firm called Rongio Global Advisors, which invests very heavily in stocks outside the United States, mostly in developing countries like China and India and Mexico and Vietnam, but also in developed countries like Japan, where she has a home. 
As some of you may remember, Laura was a very important and exceptionally thoughtful character in my book. And so I, I'm always really thrilled to get to talk to you again, Laura. So thank you for joining us. It's lovely to see you again. Thank you for having me and thank you for the conversation. I, I'm really looking forward to it. You have an extremely unusual background for a fund manager and started out about as far from the world as Wall Street could be. Can you give us a sense of where you came from and how you grew up? Well, you know, I, I grew up in uh, Western Kansas, town called Hayes, Kansas. And, you know, for those of you who read Think in Cold Blood, you know, the beginning, these sort of fields of wheat. For those of you who like, you know, prefer movies, think of Dances with Wolves. I don't know if you remember the scene at the opening of Dances with Wolves. It's sort of Fort Hayes is where I grew up. And this oh. is the last sort of bastion of civilization uh, back in the time of Western expansion. So I think that sort of perfectly sums up where I grew up on the plains in this flat place, you know, in a really beautiful place. And a lot of members of your family had been farmers and factory workers, right? So it wasn't like you were destined for a white collar future no. on Wall Street. No, I knew nothing about uh, the investment industry or asset management uh, growing up. You know, my father was a literature professor. My mother was a scientist. So I grew up in this sort of multidisciplinary household, a world of literature and science and books. And I didn't discover investment management or asset management until I got a lot older. So, and, and just um, my farm, my family farm, or my father's farm, and we still hold today, my aunt and uncle live on that farm. It's called Longview Farm. But we thought about, actually, we thought about calling Ronger Longview Farm, but, it, you know, in the world of sort of I, protecting your name or making sure you don't have this sort of, you know, name that's more common, it wasn't that protected enough. <laughs> but the patent lawyers kind of uh, disputed the name, so we, we went with Ronger, which has a different sort of meaning. But yeah, yeah my family farm was called Longview Farm and set on the hills overlooking uh, the Missouri River in Kansas. So really beautiful place. I've talked a bit in the past with Tom Russo about the connection between farming and investing, and also more recently with Peter Keefe about the amount of time he spends out in nature and how studying predators has been very helpful to him as an investor. Do you think there are things that you're carrying from your childhood on the farm that have helped you as an investor? I mean, all of it, you know, the notion of resilience and, you know, win by not losing because, you know, my grandparents... My other grandparents, you know, came from a factory environment and they're all very conservative people. They, they lived through the World War II, the Depression. And I just grew up with this notion of resilience, of being able to survive through anything. So, and also just this longer term, term view and perspective on life. So, yes, I'm a big fan of herself. Actually, I was just reading his last chapter of the sort of the revised Graham and Dodd securities analysis on globetrotting. But uh, yes, I'm a big fan of the notion of planting seeds <laughs> when you're investing. So, And what did your family make of it when you started to go into the investment business? Were they sort of bemused by the fact that you would chase after money? Because my, my sense was that your family wasn't particularly interested in money. Even, you know, my dad has not, has never been interested in more, you know, like they, they live, I mean, they, my grandparents, if you look at my grandparents on my father's side, they actually had a lot of wealth from farming, but you never saw that in their disposition. They lived far below their means. They were very frugal. So that sort of personality or that sort of, I guess you would say philosophy of frugality was prevalent in my family, even though they weren't 
fairly affluent for the small town in Western Kansas. So um, for sure, I grew up with this mentality or notion of frugality. And I don't think my mother quite knows what I do today. So I'm not one who talks about what I do for a living very often. If people ask me what I do, I usually say I work in finance. So no, I don't think that that was thought of as a career from my, from my family. But you were always quite, quite numbers oriented, right? I remember you saying that as a kid, you loved math and you, what did you used to do with your father's uh, allowance, which is a story I remember you, you telling on a podcast you and I did together with my former colleague, Dean Chatsky. You talk about gaming in your, you know, people liking, enjoying games. You know, I grew up playing games. Like I said, I, I really benefited, you know, as a child from my parents' lack. They get, they're great at a lot of subjects, science, literature, all sorts of subjects, but math was maybe not their specialty. Right. So there were times my mom, I remember one time she said, will you go, I'll pay you 10 cents a peach if you go out and pick the peaches up off the ground. And I kind of looked down and I'm like, I don't think my mom realizes there's thousands of peaches on the ground. So I went out and did that. And I'm like, my mom's like, what do I owe you? I'm like, hey, you owe me a hundred dollars. You know, that was a lot of money back then. So you know, I benefited from that. And for my father, it was, you can have $5 a week or you can, I'm going to put all my change when I come home in a, in a jar and you can have my change. I said, you know, I watched my father's habits for a little while and I said, I'm going to take the change. And I ended up having the highest allowance in school by far. And that's when I acquired the nickname Money Bags because every time you got in a car with me, I, you know, I had these bags that were jingling because they were full of change. So I grew up playing these games when I was little and always enjoyed them. And then you ended up with a very unusual education for someone to go into finance. You studied history and political science at the University of Kansas, and then ended up getting a master's degree in East Asian languages and culture from the University of Kansas, and then went off and actually lived in Japan. And I remember you once saying to me that you lived in the Japanese countryside and you were doing some sort of social and economic study of peasants and lords in, in, uh, in the Tokugawa period, which I looked up and is something like 1603 to 1868. Yeah. How, how does, sorry, what were you going to say? <laughs> One of those wonderful papers, you know, that'll put you straight to sleep at night, you know, right. but only one of those, one of those things that's only done in academia, right? Um, this very narrow study, but yes. I, I once had an editor uh, who, <laughs> who, who told me that he had written a paper He'd done his master's thesis on bear imagery in 18th century literature. And when I laughed, he looked so put out, like he, he didn't realize just how obscure that was. So, so these studies of, um, of Japanese peasantry and, and Japanese feudal lords and the like, how, how did this strange education going off to Japan, studying these things that weren't really related to investing in any way, set you up in some way for a life? as a money manager? I think, you know, we were, you know, the time frame I was going to college was this period, I think, of the original kind of Friedman, the world is flat era, right? You had the fall of the Berlin Wall. You had the opening of China. You had, when I was in school, I was taking South African history when apartheid, apartheid crumbled. So you had this sort of great period of globalization starting. And I, I think I was aware of that in a school and this international education would differentiate me from sort of everyone else. And so that's part of why I studied, you know, what I studied also just the challenge in studying at the time frame Japanese, because it's still known today, if you're an English speaker, 
is one of the five hardest languages, you know, according to the CIA anyway, for English speakers to learn. So there was a challenge in learning this language. I didn't fall in love with the culture until later. I guess when I was living there was when I really fell in love with the culture and the literature uh, of Japan. But um, I can say the way it prepared me for what I do. I, there was this one period of time, as we talk about technology further, where I looked after I'd gotten in the industry and said, what makes a great portfolio manager? And I mean, you know, it, we spend some of our time in spreadsheets. I think in our earlier years, when we're really learning app counting and numbers and math, you spend a lot of time in spreadsheets. But that that sort of evolves over time. And one of the things about portfolio managers, and it is this multidisciplinary industry. I have to be able to go public speak and talk to clients in a way that they can understand and write and read and, and think. My father would always say, you know, liberal arts, taking, you know, studying liberal arts, is, it's about how to think, not necessarily what you study. So that's why I think that education is so important. It taught me how to think. Yeah, and so, you're, you're synthesizing information from so many different areas as a, as a really good investor. I mean, we'll talk much more later about your weird reading habits and travel habits, <laughs> which are very idiosyncratic. But it, it feels like from very early on, your willingness as someone from rural Kansas to go off to the middle of nowhere in Japan and start studying the world from a different perspective, very, very characteristic of you from very early on, it sounds like. My parents studied abroad too. They they had uh, quirky degrees, you know, in English, but then also minored in art. You know, so my father and mother had actually did a study abroad program in Mexico. So mm. I grew up with parents who wanted to see the world and thought it was important to understand the world. And my um, sense was that in some way you felt like if you were going to break into the investing profession, which I think you wanted to do from fairly early on you were going to have to set yourself apart in some way. You didn't have the Ivy League pedigree, the sort of compulsory degree from Wharton or Columbia Business School or whatever. I probably wore a chip on my shoulder from that for, for a long period of time. You know, it was probably eight to 10 years in where sort of I lost that chip. And that yeah. was a really freeing experience, you know, because I think probably if you look at the education I've given myself, it rivals some of the best educations I intentionally seek out uh, knowledge. So I read prolifically and take courses when I don't have to. And so it took me a while to get over that. You know, I think you're definitely at a disadvantage by not having that education early on in the industry. I think having a chip on your shoulder, though, is weirdly helpful in getting you started because it forces you to hustle in a way that people who are smug and self-satisfied and think they actually know may not be inclined to do? I, when I came back from Japan, I wasn't taking business classes or finance courses, but I was reading the Wall Street Journal every day at college. And I, I was interested in finance and money. And, but I just didn't know anything about the industry. You know, there was no one who... I didn't have a mentor who taught me about the industry and that there were jobs in this field. So... When I came back from Japan, you know, I wanted to do something global. I didn't, still didn't know about the asset management industry. My father said to me, you know, there's this fantastic company in Kansas City. In the time frame, it was 20th century, not American century. And it was, they were hiring bilingual client relations representatives. And he said, this is one of the top 100 companies you can work for in the country. 
So, you know, why don't you try to get a job there? And so I had gone to interview in New York and my husband, you know, this was sort of goes back to my husband who, who is also a guy from Western Kansas. He's a believer, you know, and if you think about what he thought it would take to be successful in life and get to this point of wiser and happier, he thought, okay, we need to have to accrue savings so that we can choose what we want to do in life. And so he's like, I think we can accrue savings by staying in Kansas. So that's sort of how I ended up in 20th century accruing savings of what exploring the world. And then I think also to the, the people who come to work in Kansas City, you know, there's sort of a different breed of people too. So that was sort of a nice set of people to, surround, to be surrounded by in the early years. And American Century Investments, as it became, was a very prominent firm back then. And you went, I think in probably 1997, became a bilingual investor relations rep. And I remember talking to you once about what it was actually like being on the phones and talking to clients about asset allocation and diversification and how they would sort of, often they would start their conversations by saying, you guys suck. And they would always be complaining. It was. What did you know? (laughs) Sorry, say again. Yeah, it was the period, it was the tech bubble, you know, so we ran diversified strategies. So you know, I spent a great period of time getting yelled at for, you know, only having 35% returns or something along those lines. You know, they were so extraordinary returns, but they weren't keeping up with the NASDAQ of the moment. So that was how I started. But that was still in the days when people called. I sort of cheated too. We talked about this before. I knew I would never have to use Japanese on the phone in American Century. If you think about the culture of Japan, I mean... You know, it's it's a culture that it's sort it's sort of funny because you know when you think about a crowd, there's I mean it's you know again a culture where there's a lot of contradictions, but um you know you have imperfection in architecture, <laughs> you know, but people who are Japanese and they want to speak English, they they want to speak it perfect. So I didn't think I didn't think anyone would ever call in, you know, who actually spoke Japanese. So and no one ever did. Really? Yeah. No. Once. American 20th century at that time period had gotten acquired by, partially acquired by J.P. Morgan. And so the only time I really ever used my language skills and they got rusty for a while was when a camera crew came in from Japan to interview. And so that was the only time I really used my Japanese. And when you think about what that experience of talking very directly to clients actually taught you about things like fiduciary responsibility, how did that have an enduring effect on you? I think we hear often in this industry, I don't get the sense that a lot of people understand it's not their money, you know? I, I hear, I listen to that over and over again. And to me, like the greatest reward is doing something well for a client. I mean, I live and breathe. I don't always do, you know, I, I don't always, you know, I'm not always right and I make mistakes, but, you know, it's always sort of in the back of my head is this is someone else's money, this is someone else's future. You know, this is their goal. This is their children's goal. So that that matters to me. It really matters hearing uh, these people's stories. I mean, I know you you're a great storyteller, and for me, just hearing other people's stories is really magical. Thanks. I I remember once Will Danoff, who's obviously one of the legendary investors at Fidelity, showing me this old photograph of a kid who's who, who had just been born, and his parents sent him this photo and said, you know, this is who you're managing money for this kid who's going to go to college eventually. And he had kept that all those years. And he said to me once, frankly, I care more. 
it was a very, it was quite a powerful statement. Like I got the sense that actually really caring, not so much about the private planes and the, and the yachts and the big cars and the big extensions on your house, but actually really having that sense of caring about the client is a very powerful motivator if you have it. I think within 20th century from the leadership, there was a cult. I mean, that's a mid, also part of Midwestern culture, right? There's a culture of frugality in the Midwest, of humility. You know, the sense of humor in the Midwest is self-deprecating, mm. so nobody takes themselves too seriously. And so there's actually, you know, even among these, I was, I didn't know anything. When I, I actually feel very lucky because I've never felt like having to have this sort of like focus on quality of life for a lot of free time or because I, I found a job I love to do. And so there's not really a separation between work and life for me. And so I think I'm really fortunate. And then in my early years, I was surrounded by this group of people who you wouldn't have known. I didn't know anything about how much the industry was paid. I just really loved the job and I was paid very little. So in that time frame, you know, I started as a bilingual client relations really representative. So I wasn't paid very much. And, but you wouldn't have known, you know, that you were surrounded by this great wealth because it's just not the culture of the Midwest. We actually competed for worst car. I was on one of the largest funds in the country at the time. It was the second, I think the second biggest fund in the country. And, you know, one guy drove this ancient Civic. You know, my windows were actually had fallen off my car. So they were taped up. And then, I mean, and it snowed in Kansas City. So we're all like, you know, it was like something out of the Incredibles where we're all in these mini cars, you know, driving into work. So the, that was just the culture of Kansas City. I mean, there's not this culture of flashing money. In fact, and I think Japan has a very similar culture, which is why I feel comfortable there, right? You know, the, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. So, I, you know, this sort of culture of showing your importance by flashing your wealth is just nothing. I just didn't grow up in that culture. It's not important to me in any way, shape, or form. And presumably coming from farming communities as well, those were places where people would have tremendous wealth in terms of land and cattle and the like, yes. but, but yes. you couldn't tell it from their clothing. My grandpa, you know, my grandpa and grandmother, you know, they, they splurged twice. Once was on a, um, they bought a grandfather clock. And then one time they, um, it was a beautiful clock and they had this very small farmhouse. We had a tiny TV in the front room, the only TV. But my grandfather wore these beat up overalls and here this man was a millionaire. You know, you would have never known it, right? Mm. But in ever. So everyone I grew up with and surrounded myself with through most of my history is, is like that. I, I would even say, you know, the great respect, you know, my, I chose to partner with Grandeur Peak. That's what those founders are like as well. You know, they, they have this culture that I really adore of, you know, it's about more than just me. They're very charitable. They care about their community. So, The person you partnered with at Grandeur Peak, Robert Gardner, who you worked with at Wasatch, I was thinking this morning, I literally, I wrote an article in 1998 where I went to Utah when Robert was a very young analyst. Well, no, I guess, I guess he was running this hot microcap fund at Wasatch. And I wrote, a, I wrote an article that was basically, I think it was called The Rookies. And the subtitle was something like, all, all these mutual fund companies are paying these outrageous wages to these hungry young stock pickers. And are, are they worth the money, these young whippersnapper kids? And I was there with Robert when 
one of the stocks he had bought, I think it was KNG, was collapsing and it went down something like 80%. And it was a terrible time for micro caps and small caps and, and his fund fell something like 20% over the next few weeks. And so it's funny that all these years later, that's the person that has played this sort of very formative part in your life. He was my office mate for a long time. So, uh, and he was generous with his time, you know, in mentoring and coaching. So, um, and I just, you know, his, the personality of caring about something greater than himself is, is very similar to the philosophy I think you grow up with on the plains of Western Kansas. So, well, he was um, also a devout Mormon, right? And I always, I, I invested with Wasatch for a long time um, in Jeff Carden's fund for many, many years. And, yes. um, and I always, maybe it was an absurd piece of stereotyping, but I loved the fact that they were um, Mormons. I sort of felt like Sam Stewart, who ran the firm, and, and Robert Gardner, like they were, very, they were very serious about morality, about taking care of your money. And they would, they would close the funds when they were absurdly yes. small in yes. this self-defeating way that was so wonderful for <laughs> clients. Yes, yes. I mean, they're so like that. So, I mean, I always consider myself an honorary member of the culture. You know, I'm not from Utah, but there's something about the culture where I grew, you know, there's something about the culture of Western Kansas that is similar, you know. And Robert, you said to me at one point, would, even if he had sort of mediocre returns one year, would just refund the fees. Yes, he's done that in the past. So. I mean, it, I, we've talked about this, but I mean, the one thing that there's not a day that goes by that those guys don't think about their fiduciary duty. And so to me, being partnered with people who think that way is important, you know? So yeah, he's really cares about his clients. I mean, he takes that seriously. And all of his biggest victories, I mean, which I I don't want to say his biggest victories, but almost every time you hear about a win, it's when he's done something well for clients. So, and that culture kind of pervades. Granger Peak. So they're just, it's just a great group of people. One thing that was interesting to me when I look back on that period is I remember being in Robert's car. So I was like a 30 year old whippersnapper of a journalist. And I remember his, his fund had closed at some ridiculously small amount, like $100 million, closed to new shareholders so that he could really protect his existing shareholders by really truly buying microcaps instead of having this sort of asset creep and or style drift because of a massive bloating of assets. And he said to me, look, if, if you wanted to invest, you know, I, I would let you invest because we spent so much time together and, you know, he, he was obliging. And I, I remember just being like, oh, that's very kind. And I, I wouldn't have let him do me a favor like that anyway as a journalist back then. And, and also, I remember thinking, well, I don't know how good you are and I have no idea how good you'll be. And it, it really highlighted for me when, when I saw how enduringly good he did turn out to be, it highlighted for me just how hard actually it is to identify whether a fund manager has what it takes. I think it's, it's hard because I mean, well, you look and you think, you know, does the person have an actual discipline approach to investing? You know, do they have a process do they have, and then the other thing, does that process translate to the other members of the team and these other personalities? How do you, how do you, you know, transmit that process? But I think that's very hard to tell from an outside view. And then, you know, you look at people in the industry, this is true for me at the moment. I mean, 
I mean, I am working in the most out of favor asset classes, I think, on the planet. You know, I think the only people left in the emerging markets, right, are the very old, the very senior and devoted or the very young because they can't get a job in, in private equity or venture capital. So they've had to take a job in emerging markets. So luckily, such a, a, a role in this industry, right? There's hard work and then there's being in the right place in the right time. And sometimes you can be good and just be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, I, I, I love Howard Marks, you know, and you read his most recent letter on sea change. And, you know, I think we've been through this period of absurdly easy money. And he, we say this all the time internally, you know, don't confuse bull markets with brains. And I, I think, you know, that your comment again about who is good and who is bad, that's particularly hard to tell right now too, because the bull markets have, have made a lot of things good for a long time. So, um, but I mean, I think just when I look at the people who I have thought of as good investors uh, in my life, they approach stocks in the markets with an, an incredible amount of humility and they have a lot of respect for their clients. So to go back to your, your story, you moved to the investment team at American Century in 1999 and, and you got on the financial analyst team, I think at a time when you once told me they were getting 12,000 resumes for every job. <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering, like, when you look back, why you think you succeeded against such high odds? What did they look at and think, yeah, this, this young woman from the middle of nowhere, although it wouldn't have been the middle of nowhere to them, has what it takes. Why, why, why do you think they saw something in you? Well, and I, you know, I owe them such a debt of gratitude because yes, I had no accounting background either. This was an accounting job, you know, I'm a financial analyst. So they were looking at the time frame for, for people who thought globally, who thought about other places because they already had, you know, I love um, Adam Grant's book on, um, you know, when he talks about cultural enhancements and a culture fit, but they had enough accountants <laughs> and then that's enough financial analysts at the time frame. What they needed was someone who could think globally. And so I think that is why uh, I got the job. You know, I was a foreign language speaker. I'd lived abroad. And when I was lucky enough or fortunate enough, that one of the first stocks I was ever given was Tiffany's. T Tiffany, at a time frame when Japan mattered to Tiffany. And I really understood the culture of the Japanese consumer. So that gave me this different lens into that stock that I think others didn't have. And it wasn't a good time in many ways for women in the business. I mean, it's never, it's never really been a great time for women in mm -hmm. the business. And I'm always sort of trepidatious getting onto this, uh, <laughs> this topic. But I remember you once saying to me there, was a, there were just no female role models there at the time. And you once told me that there was a, there was a woman there who was basically told you'll you're never going to be promoted because you work from eight till five. Can you talk about that? About just the 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 pressure and the realization very early on that you were going to have to deal with this this tremendous challenge, not necessarily just of structural sexism, but actually of the the hours that were going to be required to become really really good. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean the. She was actually married to um, the head of IT at the company uh, and, and, you know, they had children. So she said, I can put in this amount of time, which actually most people were only putting in that amount of time anyway. There were a few extraordinary, you know, people who were really trying to advance, powering ahead. But, but the fact that she couldn't was 
you know, that she actually said, I think most people just would never admit openly that this, these are going to be my hours. Right. So she was penalized for being honest. So I, I don't really see why she couldn't have achieved that level of success because a lot of people were only working those hours anyway. I mean, especially like if you're doing domestic equities. Now, if you're doing international equities, I can tell you, you know, for any young person thinking about the real becoming an analyst or portfolio manager, I mean, there is sort of no, you know, end and beginning to your day because some market is always open somewhere. So, but I mean, most of us who do international and, you know, the, the long hours of international also just absolutely love, you know, learning about different cultures and places and stocks and talking to different people. So there's a different level of a reward, you know, you're compensated for the hours worked by the knowledge that you gain from doing these, you know, unique markets. So, but yes, that was, that was, I think I told you or mentioned this to you, but when I left and decided to start, it was with a greater purpose of trying to do something to create a role model or strike out in the industry. It certainly wasn't for monetary reasons because it's, it's you know, starting a business. And one of my friends jokes who did a startup company, we called startup not for profit. So huh. <laughs> it's very, very difficult, you know, to get to the level of scale where you're making a lot of money again. And it was never my intention to earn the kind of money I made working for other companies. It was about, you know, trying to do something to change our industry. Yeah. What I saw in, you know, when I left Wasatch was exactly what I saw when I started in the beginning the actual number of females who were left in the end. It was actually, I think the number of females in actual research had gone down. So from when I started and I can count on one hand, maybe out of finger, <laughs> how many people were at American Century, you know, who were female. So, really, that yes. So, I mean, there were there was one woman who was a role model for me. She actually came up in a similar way to me, and she quit in her forties. She just said, "Enough." Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data 
and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Maker questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. I remember you once saying to me that, actually I have the, I have the quote here because I was looking at, through all my notes from our past interviews last night, and it, it, this really struck me, you talking about alpha males in the business, and you said, most of the women I know in the business have quit in their 40s. They just tire of it. Part of it is that it's draining to be surrounded by personalities that don't fit yours. This linear thinking, chest beating personality, the desire to be on the cover of a magazine before doing anything that generates the success that warrants that. Can you talk about that? That sense that there, as as you put it, there were all of these people who wanted to dress like Mark Mobius and thump their chest, but (laughs) weren't actually as successful as Mark Mobius? Uh, you know, maybe life has gotten a little, kind of controlling my own destiny around her. Maybe um, it's gotten a little better for me because I've sought out sort of men who are great partners in the last at least five or six years of my career as sort of different type of male. And I mean, we didn't talk about the positive males in, in my life. I have had some of the best male mentors and men who have supported sort of this push for more diversity in the industry through the years as well. So I always say, you know, I, I know we're both big fans of Martin's Wig. So, um, you know, the little book of safe money, he has that oh, one. Oh, Jason's Wig. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jason. Jason, Jason. Yeah. I don't know yeah, why yeah. I said that. Thank yeah. you so much. But yeah, the little book of safe money, right? I'm a huge fan of that book. Yeah. But there's that great chapter provocatively titled Sex, right? Yeah. <laughs> On gender parries in the industry. And I think, you know, some of my best Years as money man is a money manager who has been where I have been paired, male and female paired together. I think that's just a great pairing in money management. And again, I think a lot of them, you know, when you talk about sort of the traditional stereotypical female personality, well, this gets all into nature and nurture in our industry, right? <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the great value investors have these characteristics that are similar to, you know, how you describe a female investor, you know, they, they manage for risk as well as return. So it's a lot of my greatest influencers are, you know, these great male value investors. So anyway, that 
I think that's all interesting and I'm confusing what I'm saying here, but I think a lot about nature versus nurture in our industry. And I think a lot of investors are a product of their early years or their foundational years when they're investing. You know, when I started investing, the tech bubble was starting to blow up. So I am naturally risk averse. And then, of course, I was nurtured to be risk averse as well. But then I look, you know, over the last 12 years, when it's been sort of the higher the beta your portfolio, the more you've returned, the more risk you've taken, the more leverage you've had, the better your returns. I mean, I think you have a whole generation of investors, male and female, who've been nurtured to take risk. Yeah, I, I think that 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 idea that you're very much shaped by the market in which you grow up is really powerful. Because I, I like you, I, I started covering Wall Street, I guess really in the late 90s, I got serious about it, 97, 98, 99, 2000. And so I was watching the craziness, the crazy behavior, and then it coming undone. And I was invested with people like Marty Whitman, who you'd invested with. I think that was yes. the first fund you ever, you ever yes. owned. So these really hardcore, deep value survivors, people who were built for resilience. And so then when we saw everything fall apart, it kind of confirmed for us in some way this probably temperamental tendency to be risk averse, to be afraid of things falling apart. I, I think that's right. So, I mean, just think about how much the dom how much sort of a risk mentality is dominating investing right now because just of how, I mean, I'm a believer that period of pre-money or easy money went far too long. And so I think it's ingrained this culture of risk taking that might be dangerous in a world where, you know, again, how our Marxist sea change where rates may be higher for longer. I mean, you, you're having to rotate your mentality dramatically in this environment from one, well, again, I'll use Dalio here, you know, cash is trash, which I am a diehard believer in of Ben Graham. So cash is never trash to me, you know. There is an option out of an optionality value of that cash that is very important or sort of, you know, a resilience factor in that cash is important. But I mean, that, that was the environment we've been in for 12 years where cash is trash. And, and so now I think, you know, when you're getting 5% on a 30 year or 10 year treasury, cash is no longer trash. So um, I think the sort of mentality of debt or leverage has to change. And you, you think there's some kind of shift going on? I mean, as, as Howard Marks, who you've always revered and who I, I, I revere and have written about uh, extensively, always talks about this kind of pendulum effect where just when you start thinking one thing works, the other, the other thing starts to work. And so you wrote a paper with your colleague, Blake Clayton, who's the co-CIO and a portfolio manager at, at your firm, Ron Dure, white paper saying talking about how deeply out of fashion emerging markets have been after this kind of perfect storm since 2010 and you have this strong sense that that it's very likely to shift over the coming years can you talk about that what the case is for emerging markets at a time when pretty much everyone has decided i don't want to do this anymore i don't you know they've lost interest in the same way that people like jean marie Evayard were were penalized in the late 90s for being international value investors well i mean the dollar is just literally i mean the, that quote right the dollar is our currency and your problem has just swashed everything around the world so i mean it 
I think your case is, you know, if that ever reverses, you know, you have two drivers of, of really not just emerging markets, any international s- stock uh, right now, because you have weak currencies around the world and then you have uh, good, cheap value, relatively cheap valuations. So even, even in a world of higher interest rates, valuations have come down. So I think, you know, you have, when, when we started Ronger, I thought large cap U.S. stocks were actually quite attractive. I mean, I started as a large cap global stock analyst in a period when big caps were in favor. So I was very aware that Microsoft looked like it was like the perfect intersection of quality and value and momentum because the Fed kept the momentum cycle going through a very long period of time. So you had that, but I don't think that world looks quite as perfect today. You know, the quality is there, the momentum in these big caps is there, the value isn't is there as much as it used to be, and the value is there in international emerging market stocks, at least in the high quality ones. So at some point, I'd like to think that of the dollar is the catalyst and these stocks have value. In that paper that you wrote, with Blake Clayton, I was very struck by some of the statistics you used of, of, about the cycles that have occurred. And, and so you wrote that from 2010 to 22, the S&P rose 355%, whereas the MSCI Emerging Markets Index rose 26%. So, I, I mean, just an astonishing underperformance. But then you pointed out that there were these previous periods that were very different, which is something that that I write about a lot in my book, uh, the, you know, the, the sort of Ben Graham idea of the first shall be last and the last shall be first, right? Yes. So, so emerging markets outperformed from 1999 to 2010 with the rise of the BRICS. And then before that, from 1994 to 1999, the US outperformed. And before that, from 1989 to 1994, after the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, emerging markets outperformed. So there's this sense that we go through these cycles where it's not, it's not like holy writ that the US and large cap stocks must outperform forever. And I think investors forget this. I mean, I think one thing we didn't talk about too is I think allocations are down in the you know, single digits now to emerging markets, which because going back to like this generation of investors again, I mean, there's a very large generation of investors who have only seen the U.S. go up, and particularly a few stocks in the U.S. go up. I think that's also a product of the easy money period we've been in. I mean, easy money benefits scale. It benefits the biggest companies in the biggest countries. We didn't write about this in the article. I was separate. Sometimes we do white sheets because we don't think the attention spans are there anymore, and then we call white sheets a white paper. Five white sheets equal a white paper, but there's also like it's it's unbelievable if you look at like it's hard to like um, you know want to be boots on the ground. I love being boots on the ground personally, but you look, you know, there has been one heavy influencer in the world, and again, I'm gonna again we keep going back to Howard Marks, but in Sea Change, he just talks about the dominance of the global central banks in terms of its influence on investing, and I think that is just their control, sort of this control of the interest rate environment and the consequence of, you know, building of the wealth effect and then the unraveling of the wealth effect is going to heavily influence how how stocks do. But how we see it percolate in international or emerging markets is if interest rates come down and the U.S. can, you know, the first thing that interest rates go down, stocks go up, 
the consumer starts to get a little, you know, extra money in their pocket and they go out and spend. And then the job market gets better. You know, it's just, just building wealth effect. But that was like highly beneficial to the biggest of big countries. It was beneficial to Korea and Taiwan who make everything that the U.S. consumer consumes in the form of chips, you know, semiconductor chips in cars. They are the factory, I think, for the U.S. consumer. And then it benefits. It benefited China to a great degree because of scale, the scale of China, the absolute size of China. So, you know, these really kind of complicated things can be boiled down into kind of one simple cause and effect. So, and that's the world we've kind of been in. So it's either those markets are in favor or they're not. Then they're in favor or they're not. It's it's sort of an uninteresting time as an investor, I think, where sort of narrative dominates or interest rate environment dominates fundamentals. Yeah, it's worth it's worth just reminding our listeners of this sort of eternal truth that the pendulum swings, but you just never know when it will. And so I, I was looking at this statistic from Clifford Asnes, who said that US investors have only one sixth of their equity allocation in overseas oh. markets. How, how can that be smart? We, I, I mean, it just doesn't feel like it can be to me, you know, like I, you look at valuation, you look at, I mean, I'm a, a, a big believer. I mean, actually, you know, I'm a huge Nassim Taleb fan too, you know, mm. he, he calls it a white swan today, right? He's like, it's, this should be obvious. The U.S. has let money go be, you know, it's, we've kept the cost of capital too cheap, too long. He thinks, you know, it's almost like thinking about Krakatoa, right? You've got this risk building in a system where I think diversification, you know, if anything, you know, the longer this occurs, the more diversification makes sense. But this notion of concentration and concentration in the U.S. big caps has been what has worked for so long that I think people forget that I agree that pendulum shift. We actually see Blake Clayton's a really smart guy. But he actually talks a lot about the pendulum swinging double and triple time in, in China and Taiwan and Korea, you know, it swings so fast. China is a particularly interesting case because as, as you and Blake pointed out, it's, it's by far the largest component of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. It's, uh, I think it's 33% or thereabouts down from about 42% in 2020. And when you compare places like Mexico, that I think is 2%, or Brazil, that's 5%, you see just how important China is. And so there's a sense in which if you're investing in emerging markets heavily, which you are, you're so dependent on whether China is popular or not. And China obviously has gone through this terrible period, but first, I mean, partly with the COVID lockdown policy, the hostility of the government towards private enterprise the clobbered things like Alibaba, which I bought when it was incredibly cheap and just it keeps getting cheaper. Um, <laughs> massive debt problems in the property sector now. And you have quite a lot of money in China. I mean, I think when I last looked, 20% of your portfolio at Ronja New World Fund was in, in China in about 18 different stocks. How do you think about China, which so many people at this point are saying is uninvestable and it's just going to fall apart and it's peak China and the future is terrible and the demographic disadvantages are appalling. Why is it attractive to you? Well, I mean, the demographics are, are bad everywhere. I keep thinking of, I, I love that, you know, Louie Ice Age when, you know, the dodos are out playing with the watermelon, playing football and, you know, they throw the watermelon, it goes over a cliff and they're female 
you know, runs over the edge of the cliff and falls. And, you know, the Dodos are like, oops, there goes our last female. I mean, that's a problem around the world. I mean, it's not just a China specific problem. That's why I love spending time in Japan too, because it's such a petri dish for, you know, all these problems that are coming from the rest of the world, the easy money policies that have prevailed there for so long and then shrinking demographics and how you, how do you deal with that? So I think that's a common problem that isn't unique to China. It's a global problem, but we really try to invest in companies that we think are quite good uh, that can grow in spite of sort of this macro landscape. Our process doesn't sound all that different than Ben Graham on, or you know, Ben. It's a combination of Ben Graham and Warren Buffett. You know, in global markets, you know, it's what companies grow thoughtfully over time. Who is a good capital allocator? Buys back shares, pays dividends. So there's sort of these smart companies that we think still can grow in this landscape. I mean, I think China is going to have to look more like the rest of the world. It's going to have to become a nation of consumers. So whether it can pull that off or not, I don't know. But we've been too early. I don't know if we were too early or too late. We've always had, an, I guess, in our world where we think in terms of relative where at least we're supposed to think in terms of weight relative to the index. We've always been underweight China just um, because of the exact problems you point out. You know, there's such a small set of companies that fit our quality criteria, our transparency criteria, you know, where we think they're less influenced by the hand of the government, the large hand of the government. Yeah. And I, I was looking at your, your holdings and they were things like, Alibaba, which I, I was saying has been a, a costly mistake <laughs> for me, but luckily not that costly because I didn't have that much in it. But going uh, sideways now, at least, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a treat when it doesn't go down a couple of percent a day. <laughs> uh, that's a good day for me. And then Tencent Holdings, which a lot of good investors think is cheap. And then things like Yum China Holdings and China Tourism Group Duty Free and Singtao Brewery. And so it looks like there's a sort of common denominator that you're, you're looking for fairly conservative companies that are likely to survive whatever. Insanely motivated businesses, right? I mean, we're looking for financial characteristics, great balance sheet, you know, good cash flow characteristics, and then the ability to use that cash flow well, even in bad times. I mean, part of the good thing about a bad economy or a bad market is good businesses tend to gain advantage during those periods because everything else goes under. I mean, I go back to 2000, I think it was, I, I get my time years confused these days, but you know, you go back to the last bad market in China, you know, 2000, I think that was 15, but that was a time frame when the China, the businesses there consolidated. So you actually had these incredible moats forming. You were going from fragmentation to, you know, oligopolistic or monopolistic industries. So that was actually a period of time where you see that good balance sheets and businesses with the moat only get better. So um, you know, you think about the U.S. during the worst periods of the macro environment, you still had stocks that were big winners. So, And you're always looking for good companies that are at a reasonable price that are likely to survive whatever. And you're often yeah. looking for them in horrible countries that everyone hates at that particular moment. So this is, this is not uh, dissimilar to your approach in places like Turkey over the years or elsewhere. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, um, you know, good businesses got more reasonably priced. When most people had heavyweights in China, we thought the market was way too expensive. I mean, you, the animal spirits were, were incredible. Stocks were overvalued. So we didn't have much investment there. 
I guess this was a couple of years ago. I mean, it's part of why we had such a good year last year. We didn't know Russia and we, when Russia, Ukraine happened, we didn't own any. And then, you know, we were dramatically, we sold a lot of China when it got expensive during COVID. So China, if you remember, their policies were the best at the beginning of COVID. So the stock market was on fire and stocks were expensive. And that's when we were peeling back on our China weights. And I think we've been too early this time. You, you have this unusual process that I wondered if, if you could explain quickly to people, because it starts with you doing this bottom-up screen of something like 70,000 companies around the world to give you a sense of where there are patterns of, uh, of underpriced stocks or overpriced stocks, places you need to, to avoid. Can you talk about how, how this, this iterative process of doing this enormous and very time-consuming an arduous screen helps to guide you and keep you out of trouble. Yeah, I mean, we, it's, I mean, honestly, it's, if you read Defensive Investor and you go back to read your intelligent investor, I mean, we have stolen a lot from Ben Grand. I mean, we look, we start with the balance sheet. I mean, that's, that's where I differ from Wasatch. My original mentors were value investors. You go back, oddly enough, at a growth firm in American Century. My mentors, I was an accidental tourist to Graham and Buffett. They were teaching me. I was 25 years old. They're teaching me, you know, Graham and Buffett. And I had no idea that's what they were teaching me. But mm. so, you know, we just apply that to the international markets. I mean, we look, we start the screen it encapsulates. What does a balance sheet of a company look like? It goes back, you know, 10, 15 years, 15 years, but looks at the balance sheet, the history of the balance sheet, the cash flow whether the company adds economic value. So we start with balance sheet. We say, does this company have reasonable leverage? Oh, or is, it, is, is the you know, debt on the balance sheet improving? So you know, you're looking for these terms in the business. And then you're saying, is this, well, you know, is this the type of business where it's acceptable to have some debt? You know, is it a business where there's a high level of recurring revenue? Or a simple business where people, consumers tend to consume even when it's bad, you know, ramen noodles or... But from, and then we look at the cash flow. How does the company use the cash flow? You know, are they investing for growth? You know, did they pay dividends? Do they, you know, buy back shares? And then last but not least, we really look at, I mean, this is from this kind of book, like studying how Warren Buffett invests, but, you know, is there, you know, does their margin suggest that they have a competitive advantage? And then Graham, you know, does they have stable or durable growth? We're not looking for the fastest growth, but we're looking for a business that, you know, has a history of growing through a lot of different environments. And then we whittle that world down. And believe it or not, it's, you know, when you whittle the world down today, there aren't that many companies that fit <laughs> that level of quality, you know, as when you look around the world. So here's another reason, you know, when we talk about international emerging markets that we haven't gotten to, but I, you always hear this, well, quality of the company must be terrible in small cap land, right? Well, that in America, where stock prices have gone up, up, and up, I think what has been left in small cap, and given we've had high levels of inflation, how we define small cap should probably change. But I think if you're using old definitions of small cap pre-inflation, you know, then yeah, the quality of a small cap here probably isn't all that good. You've got a lot of unprofitable companies in small cap land today. But I mean, we're dealing with small countries. You know, you've got countries like New Zealand where the population is just tiny or Australia. We're dealing with uh, nascent economies. So that means, you know, you can have an 800 pound gorilla in the small cap 
land when you look overseas. I mean, the quality of company is quite good down cap is overseas, especially because it's been out of favor so long. So, you know, we're not sacrificing quality down cap. So you have this very systematic process on the one hand where you do this ridiculously uh, detailed screen, I think twice a year, and then you spend much of your work week kind of uh, going through these companies one by one, seeing whether they fit fit these requirements. So you can reduce those 70,000 companies to something like 300 to 500 companies, maybe that's your target list. And then the thing that's really distinctive is you go travel like crazy. I, I remember you once telling me that you would travel six to nine months a year. And, and you've talked to me about, in the past, your investing style resembling unconstrained free verse. Like, like there's this, and the company is named Rondure, right? After a passage from a Walt Whitman poem. So, so on the one hand, there's this very systematic, rigorous process. And on the other hand, there's this very free, flexible process that's more creative that really revolves around travel and reading in an incredibly broad way. And so I wanted to switch to that topic because I think it's something that's so distinctive about your approach and it's very idiosyncratic. It's not common in the investment industry. So first, let's talk about travel. Like, How many countries have you been to over the years? 75. So, and many of those countries, like if you think about where there's a broad array of high quality moded businesses. Some countries I've been to many times. I mean, you know, when you go to Korea, you, Korea is still a country where you exchange business cards. And, you know, I walk into a corporate meeting and I don't want to exchange cards with me. You know, it's probably a sign that I've been in the meetings a few times. But yeah, so there, there are some places, you know, I've only been once or twice and some I've gone to many times. And can you talk about the pattern recognition that comes from that? Because I, I, I think of you going, whether it's to a place like Turkey, where I remember you once telling me, look, I, I, I was there when the hotels were $1,200 a night, and I was there when the, when the hotels were $75 a night. Can you talk about the pattern recognition that comes from these repeated boots on the ground trips? Well, we just... We, I was in, when I was in Japan, this, I'll give an example. When I was in Japan this last time, I actually wrote my quarterly letter on the you know, hamburger economics. I was talking about the Big Mac index, but I noticed every country we've been to over the last five months. So everything that's not dollar denominated or dollar oriented has really cheap hamburgers right now. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to international markets today. They're cheap, you know, almost anywhere you go, emerging, developed. You know, it's funny. We read that stuff here. We read that stuff. We know like the dollar is strong, but I don't think you realize it until you're on, really truly realize it until you're on the ground, just how strong that dollar is today. So, you know, these are things we see, I think because I'm a consumer analyst and, you know, I, I was trained first in consumer. That was my first sector. And so, so much of what I do or the types of companies that we invest in or where my circle of competence lies is tangible. So, you know, I, I can watch people's behavior and that's really helpful to me to see what they're doing. But you're right. I mean, it just there's a combination of this real rigor. of We don't have a lot of time. We're, we're in this industry that's, you know, we've got to narrow down or whittle down the world in a way that makes sense. So we narrow down, you know, these are the types of companies or the businesses we're going to look at. And then getting on the road, it serves multiple pur- purposes. 
I think, again, it goes to everything today is interconnected, I think. You know, there's no company that exists in a vacuum. It exists within a global economy. And so for me to try to go out and solve for what makes this company tick, it it requires doing a lot more than just reading a sell side report on the quarter. Another thing that's very unusual about your approach is that you're not just constantly traveling to countries to visit companies, but you've actually planted yourself in many different countries for extended periods of time. Can you talk about what you've done in the past, some of the places where you've put yourself and how you do it and why that's been so helpful to you? There was a part of it, you know, too. I mean, it was actually when, you know, when shared, the shared economy came about with apartments, you know, it actually became frugal. It's actually, yes, this plane ticket is actually often the most expensive part of travel. So you'd go and you'd rent this apartment in this place. You'd get on the time zone. I think one of the biggest things was like saving your own health, you know, getting in the same time zone with these companies. You know, you were able to get a lot more done than operating in, in the U.S. in a U.S. time zone in a U.S. frame of mind, you know. So um, I've hubbed out of when I was covering Africa, I used to hub out of Europe a lot. So if I were going to French speaking Africa, I would hub out of Paris. Because the flight the flights were really common, you know, and and, and easy. So if I were, you know, traveling to English speaking Africa, I often hubbed out of the UK. I've hubbed out of Japan. I've spent weeks in Indonesia. I'm not one either, like, you know, you hear about people who, you know, they go live in and to Ireland, and they'll go pub out of, you know, a beach city. I mean, I like Bangkok, so I'll stay in Bangkok. Um, I find it fascinating, and you learn a lot about how people behave when you're in, when you spend time in these places. You learn a lot about culture. I think I remember you saying to me you'd also spent a lot of time staying in places like Abu Dhabi and Dubai, and you'd spent a month in Kenya at one point, and you'd go to Tanzania so you could learn more about East Africa. And I think there was a time yes. you, you, you stayed in Amsterdam for an extended yes. period, Paris for an extended True. period. So there's a Thailand, Singapore. So there's a, this is an unusual way to build a kind of competitive advantage by having a deep sense of how a particular part of the world operates, what the culture is like there. I think it saves a lot of time too. I traveled recently with Two or three, there were three different generations of investors, sort of entry level or new, new investors, like beginning of their career, kind of mid career investors. And then, you know, I'm usually the most senior person in the room these days. But, you know, it's so interesting how you approach things because for me, there's this nuance of culture. I don't know how to explain it, but like a, the first part of a lot of meetings is lost in translation. I think we all waste a lot of managerial time by sort of not understanding these cultural things when we go into the meetings. So, I mean, I think one of the things that it has enabled me to do is cut to the chase of what makes the investment tick a lot quicker by understanding how the company functions within its particular culture. Um, I think that's important. And I think that that can really comes from reading a lot. You also yeah, have I this mean, sense of I, I would say respect for the local cultures that's different, I think, from a lot of the, uh, the, the, the brash Americans 
uh, and I count myself as an honorary British American having lived here since my early 20s, although I did live in Hong Kong and London along the way. But I remember you talking to me about Japan and, and you obviously years ago had bought a home in, in Kyoto, so you spent a lot of time there. And you talked to me about just how different the actual priorities of a, of a Japanese company are to the priorities of a US company. Can, can you give us a sense of that? Because it just it's a perfect embodiment of why you actually need not just to impose your own values on the cultures that you're visiting. And it's ESG or responsible investing before it was fashionable, right? Uh, I mean, it's, you know, stakeholder, customer, you know, customer comes first. You know, there's these, there's these actors, you know, that we don't count. I mean, mainly, mainly employees, you know, we don't think as much about employees in Western culture, customers. It's really, you know, sort of this environment of managing for the quarter, you know, maximizing profit, right? Here. Profit maximization, right, in the short term versus, you know, surviving for the long term, I think. I think it's dramatically different culture. And I know, by the way, I know, you know, we both have one. I think we both love Graham Greene. I'm a mm. huge Graham Greene fan. Yeah. My favorite, one of my favorite books of all time is The Quiet American. So that probably sums up who I am a lot. I mean, I'm embarrassed by Americans overseas often, you know, and I've embarrassed myself to be a few times by being American overseas, but I mean, this notion of there's no such thing as a quiet American, I think is, is <laughs> uh, <laughs> that statement rings true. So I try not to bring my Americanness to global investing. I think maybe you haven't, we, we take a unique approach, you know, when we think, when we thought about like who we wanted to be as re responsible investors, we wanted sort of this answer. I didn't want this Western no notion, you know, of, I think the problems in the U.S., I mean, this is changing. And, and, you know, you look at Europe, a lot of these problems are rich people's problems. I've always said after spending all kinds of time in Africa, poverty has no carbon footprint. That's completely true. And so you think what, how we try to approach, you know, going into each different country was with respect for the culture. And you know, trying to speak on the co on the company's terms and not our own. And how do you? I don't think, think that I have any business telling a company in India how they should run their business. I don't have that little this notion of like I I am listening to your podcast. Lee. I, the older I get, the less I know. It's so true. So on what planet should I be going into India telling someone who's lived and run a business in that culture forever how to run their business? I just don't think I should. I remember Monish Pabrai once saying to me, talking to me about a famous investor who who had gone into Japan and was telling them, uh, you know, here's what you need to do to fix your economy. And he, you know, he was this sort of big billionaire activist investor in Japan, and he's like, this guy's just going to get his head handed to him. And it was a kind of yeah. wonderful example of a foreigner, in this case, an Englishman, I think. Uh, so we're equally to blame. A foreigner thinking we could go in and civilize the locals and tell them how to, how to be better and smarter. I mean, I think even just language, you know, like the nuances of language, Americans are direct. So many cultures are not direct. And so I think by going in with this notion that everyone is direct, I mean, a lot of times people will say something in, especially I think I'll speak to Asian cultures because because I know they're the best, but you're like, they will tell you what you want to hear to get you to leave them alone, you know? So, I mean, you have to go into a meeting 
you know, this is again why reading is so important. Mosaic theory is so important to me because most cultures are not going to tell. I don't think Americans, they'll tell you what you want to hear too. And they'll strongly voice their opinions, even if their opinions are dead wrong. Because, you know, I think particularly when I was younger, right? Maybe I was a braver investor when I was younger because I thought I was right or knew I was right. You know, now I feel like I'm wrong all the time. You know, there's just this immense sense as time goes on of not knowing all the things I want to know. So anyway, I think that sort of level of humility and nuance of culture is important. I always tell people in Japan, you know, yes, may mean no. I will try means no. Maybe means no. Perhaps means no. And if you get them to say no, then you really said something wrong. So it's just a different world. And I think a lot of North Asia fits in that mold as well, you know. And I was surprised, I was surprised when I traveled to Africa, how much sort of the culture of of group or community was more pervasive there. It almost felt Asian in nature, you know, versus Western, I guess, if we're using Western. (laughs) You once had a lovely image that you explained to me where you were talking about seeing the world in terms of nesting dolls and having this sense of of only having got to the second layer. Can, can you explain what you meant? Because it's a, it's a very good way to, to visualize this kind of acceptance of our own ignorance in a way. Now I think I might only be on the first, but, huh. you know, but yeah, no, I mean, the world is a complex place. I mean, I, I think it's one of the reasons I, I avoid complexity in businesses at all costs. One, I don't think I'm very smart, so I stick to simple businesses. But I mean, understanding a simple business in a complex world, you know, is something I believe tremendously in. But I, I feel like, you know, with each trip, you discover something new. And it's not what you think you're going to discover when you go. So, like, it's, it's always a surprise to me what, what it is I find out on a trip. The image you had given me was you, like with those Russian nesting dolls, there's a whole series of layers and, and we're always sort of on the outside. Maybe you get to the second layer, but you're nowhere near the center. And I, I think that's a really helpful way to visualize our own ignorance or level of knowledge. I think a lot of it too, the more I read, I mean, you can take, I'm just one person in a complex world. You know, there's only so much I can know. So by picking up a book, I can still harness somebody else's knowledge, a different personality type too. So they may be seeing the world in a different way. And I think, you know, like not reading or, or not traveling. And I do all the fundamental work too. I mean, during COVID, I read more 10 Qs and Ks and I was loving it. Then, you know, you can imagine I build models, but um, you, you look and you think it's, it's sort of like when you check into a Airbnb and you see a puzzle and it's snowing. And, and I think the other way to think about it is like you get like partially done with the puzzle and then you realize like 10 pieces are missing. So it kind of drives you crazy. So to me, traveling and reading is kind of discovering those missing puzzle pieces. And I walked, I was, I was in my colleague went to, Blake went to, um, he was in China and, um, and I think he was in Indonesia this quarter, last quarter. He was in the Philippines. I was in Japan during a couple of weeks. And it wasn't, my epiphany was like, oh, you know, these, you know, the finance industry may have interesting business models again because there is leverage. And the, I think the strong are going to survive. So that you, you might have consolidation in Japan that you're not, you weren't going to expect. So 
it's always something different that you discover on a trip. And it's not what you think you're going to discover that you discover. So let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. You also do a lot of structured reading before the trip. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you have referred to me as um, intentional reading. 
how do you structure your study of these countries before you go on a trip? What are you reading? Whatever I can find. So, you know, I have, it's a very odd, almost compulsive habit of, so I'm actually going or traveling with my husband on a business trip, one of his business trips for the first time ever, actually. He's going to Australia for work in a couple of weeks and I'm joining his trip. You know, I'll be working remotely, but I went out and bought, I will buy whatever book I haven't read on Australia. And I will, you know, it's a, it's a joke. My husband always asks, you know, do you have enough clothes in your suitcase or is it just full of books? Um, but every country I go to, I bring a minimum of three books. I like to leave room in my suitcase for discovering other books. And just like you, William, I read physical books still because I fold them, I highlight them. I, there's a purposeful reading, it's intentional reading, so... And you yeah. reread a great deal as well, which I was very struck by. I remember you, you saying to me that you, you, would, you would read the Quiet American Graham Greene's novel every year. You'd read The Intelligent Investor every year. You'd, there, were, there were a bunch of books you just would read over and over again. What's the benefit of that type of compulsive rereading? You find quotes that you know, really you know, mean, I think passages or passages that really mean something to you. I don't know, that help you identify with thinking about the world in a different way. Again, I mean, I think if we're trying to generate alpha, I mean, you have to be different at the right time. <laughs> so those, we have a culture. I always find it interesting that we have this culture of reading. We, we all sit back and we read the greatest investors. And the greatest investors tell us things like don't trade. You know, the greatest investors tell us plant seeds. But yet... The, and culture, our culture is quantity over quality, more over less, surface level over deep thinking. And so I think in some ways you have to sort of rebel against the culture in order to actually be a good investor. It's also striking to me that there's, you have both on the one hand, this kind of rereading obsession, right? I remember you saying to me recently that you'd been rereading things like William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury or Macbeth by Shakespeare. And then at the same time, you have this tremendous breadth in your reading. Like before these trips, you would, you would often say, okay, so I'm, I'm going to read economic books, political books about this country, but I'm also going to read great literature. And then I'm going to read mysteries and thrillers because they give you more of a sense of pop culture. Can you talk about that combination of going very narrow and repetitive, and yet at the same time, tremendous breadth, why that's helpful? I think there are certain books that just resonate with you in life, right? Just for your own personal enjoyment or fulfillment. I mean, for me, The Quiet American is one I love. I think a lot of people from who have lived in the West for a long time also love A River Runs Through It. I mean, that passage at the end where, you know, you have the river running over these rocks and it's reminding him of the passage of time, you know, it, it brings even all the, you know, it brings people to tears, that last passage. But I think there are certain passages and that you just read just for the pure beauty of the language. And it just resonates with you. Another one for me is Snow Country, the opening Japanese novel. But Japanese novels, we talk a lot about, they have a lot of white space. You know, it's a culture where people don't have to be speaking all the time. You don't have to fill empty space. And so you have these beautiful novels. But back to, um, someone gave me the advice a long time ago, a mentor, you know, I was just telling him, you know, my reading on, 
been to stop kind of in finance and he was a global traveler. His background is very similar to yours, actually, UK, Hong Kong. But he said, I, I would recommend that you read mystery novels set in these wonderful places. Hmm. So read travel books and novels and mysteries set in all these magical places, politics. And what I learned about the countries from those books, often, you know, one book set in Malaysia could be better than spending tons of time there or even just um, what you learn from reading nonfiction. So I think reading these, you can, I think it would go back and you think about Moby Dick and I think about Kansas and, you, you know, they're talking about travel and Moby Dick and he said, well, I can't remember who makes the reply, but he says, well, I can see a lot or I can see the whole world from where I'm standing. And I think there's an element to that is what reading does for us. I mean, when you grow up in Kansas too, right, you, you can really see the world. You can see the curve of the earth from, from Western Kansas. So anyway, I, I don't know how to explain it very well. It's hard to articulate just those, you know, when your mind is free, when you have a white space, when you're reading, that's when your best epiphanies come from that have nothing to do with actually what you're doing. You also have this very unusual approach where you pick one big topic a year, which I think is fascinating. Can, can you talk about that and what some of the topics have been in recent years? This year it was, um, and it still is, I've been it's getting more eclectic and multidisciplinary, but it started as sort of, I mean, it, it does almost always tie into my interest in the markets. You know, I see value in Japan, you know, you see this great intersection of high quality and value. So. I started with reading about craftsmanship hmm. in, in Japan and cooking, because I've read almost all the literature in Japan. So I moved on to a new topic. But so, you know, I was reading these beautiful books about, you know, craft, craftsmen in, um, in Japan. So in cooking, you know, there's this, uh, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of the investors you spoke to and what struck me about your book was how many of us sort of hold this sort of philosophy of Zen. And so I was reading, you know, the art of, uh, you know, Zen cooking and mm. um, all these sort of craftsmanship books, you know. And so that was my topic for the year. And how, how has it helped, Laura? Like, what what is it? How how does it resonate into investing? Well, we haven't talked about this, but the older I get, the feel, you know, there's this compulsion in America to do something to trade. So sometimes reading just like distracts you from your worst compulsion too, right? Which is to trade. So there's this element of just slowing down to do deeper research, to think. I think when you're thinking about these craftsmen too, you, it helps you think about what really makes a great business as well. You know, what is it about these craftsmen that, you know, parallel to these great businesses in Japan? Because a lot of the great businesses there too started as some form of craft. So that something I pulled from these books, but it also makes you think a lot about that environment of investing too. It's a slower process. That was my topic next year's historical fiction. So I've already picked it out. It's a bunch of meaty books. I remember Nick Sleep talking to me about how um, he, he got me to read Michael Pollan's book where he was building his writing shed in his garden. <laughs> and one of the reasons he got me to read it was he was talking about things that are lovingly made over long periods of time, things that endure. And in a way, you think of you know, no Nomad, the fund that Nick and Zach, uh, yes. K. Sakaria, were running together. 
it was lovingly made. It was constructed with this great care. There's this, there's a sort of craftsmanship. And then you, you think of Buffett talking about painting his masterpiece with, uh, with Berkshire that again, it's lovingly made. I, I think there's something, there's something very powerful about this idea of trying to make things that endure, that are made simply, but with great care. We also talk about, you know, every year when you think about portfolio management, right? It's like painting a gen, painting a picture as well. So one of the things like reading and changing topics and travel does is, you know, I like to think about starting every year with a blank piece of paper. You know, how would it look the same today? Would I paint it differently? I, I mean, I certainly think it invests a craft. You know, how do, every year, how do you get better? You've also, I was thinking, I was looking through some of your old topics that we've discussed over the years, and I, I just wanted to give our listeners a sense of the breadth of, of what you've done. There was, there was one time, I think we spoke in, in 2020, and you said, oh yeah, I've been focusing on US frontier history plus explorers. And so you're saying, so I'm reading all the books on the West, on the Dust Bowl, on Native American history, and Willa Cather, who, who I love, who's great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Death Comes to the Archbishop is fantastic. And then fantastic. there was a, yeah, it's a great book. And then there was a time where you were focused on the Middle East. There was one year where you told me you were focused on Russia and physics. And so you were doing the history and literature of Russia and physics at the same time. Mm-hmm. There's another time you told me I'm doing explorers starting from the Vikings. And another <laughs> time where you told me I'm, I'm doing oil. Sometimes you bite off more than you can chew, right? Russia is a big topic. Oil was a smaller topic, you know? I mean, Marx was asking in that recent letter, too, about, like, what are the sea change events? To me, oil, that was a sea change for emerging markets and international investing, you know, because if you go back in U.S. history, the last few years of history, anyway, when the U.S. was importing oil from the Middle East, see, this, these are topics that I get from my book that I don't think I would get from reading young you know, you know, sell side analysts who are focused on a quarter, but you look and you think, okay, just from travel, from reading, from doing 10 Qs and Ks and working at companies, we were exporting dollars to the Middle East when we were not, you know, when we didn't have our own oil, when oil shale and shale oil wasn't working at a profitable level in the United States. Oil prices stayed high for a long time. You know, you had innovation in an industry that isn't very innovative. And we drove down the cost of producing a barrel of oil or producing oil in the United States. And we ended up in the U.S. running, a, we run a trade deficit for a long time. And when you're sending money to the Middle East for oil, these are countries built on sand and oil, and they don't have a lot of other things. They're not producing Nike tennis shoes or, you know, they're not producing food. Those dollars percolate out to the rest of the world when they go to the Middle East. So when we started producing oil and when we stopped having a trade deficit, this was a pivotal change in the global economy because the dollar strengthened, the dollar became hard to get for the rest of the world. So to me, that was just this weird sort of connecting the dots thing that you get from reading and doing all sorts of different work that isn't just staring or building a spreadsheet. So you're, you're doing the building of the spreadsheet and you're doing the very systematic analysis and you're going to visit all the companies, but it's very interesting to me that you have this very um, freewheeling, more creative approach. And I, I mean, just to give, to give our, our listeners a sense of just how deep it goes, you also have 
a, a kind of what you regard as Rangio University, right? This sort of in-house university. Can you talk about what you do with your colleagues, how you, how you get together very consistently to, um, whether it's to cover an accounting topic or, or to read books that you then discuss together? Well, you know, we had gotten out of the habit a little bit during COVID, so we've been getting back into the habit again. But I mean, and one of the things we've been doing is listening to more podcasts as a team as well. You know, I think COVID, COVID brought about a lot more really good podcasts. Mm-hmm. So that was something we did. We did EDX and Coursera. Last year, we, we all studied the CFA ESG curriculum together. So that was what we did as a group last year. It was a little different than normal. Uh, this year, we were reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead together. Huh. It turns out I had the Dud translation. So my colleague had a really good translation. I didn't have a very good one. So we were, we were, you know, those are some of the things we do. And for us, I think, it, I mean, I think as time goes by, if anything, the thing that you're spinning, you know what the good companies are throughout the world. I know today fairly well what are the good companies, right? It's having the discipline and the behavior and philosophical mindset to not do something stupid. That's what I find myself, you know, as I get older and older. It's just as much about, you know, your just disposition for investing, your ability to stomach the bad times. I don't celebrate the good times like I used to because I know that the bad times will come. Investing's hard. <laughs> do you think having read all these books about difficult periods in American history and other history, like whether it's studying the Dust Bowl or whatever, whether that actually helps you in terms of your own resilience and ability to endure difficult times. Because you, you've, you've been in the desert in a way for the last 12 years, right? <laughs> while, while emerging markets have been hated. I mean, it's the worst time that you could be somebody who would be buying small cap emerging market stocks. I mean, you've just, you just been going against the tide for year after year after year, very difficult. And I, I'm wondering if your, your reading and your sense of history enables you actually to handle that kind of adversity. Well, maybe this goes back to, too, the talking about, you know, sort of Zen philosophy and Zen practice. I mean, there's all sorts of things other than just meditation that are like mindfulness training. Mm. <laughs> I think reading is one of them. Travel is one of them. It sort of takes you out of your comfort zone takes you away from your daily you know routine it expands your mind and i think also it helps you i don't know focus on things are bad things are good you know there's things we can't control right that's just i can't control this so i'll focus on controlling what i can control you know i'll run the process someday the process will come back in favor again the worst thing i can do is change the process you know so, I mean, I can make the, we can all make the process better. We can get better at our craft, but the basic elements of the process of identifying a good company haven't changed. Yeah. So in a way it's having the, the strength and discipline to keep doing things that haven't been working in yes. the trust that they'll eventually work because they make sense. We keep going back to Harvard Marks, but I was at a, I went to my first kind of big event. It was the Ivy Value Conference. It was held in person this year in Toronto. Marks was the keynote speaker, but uh, he said, and, you know, I was on some panel, but he said he was speaking about his writing 
in the 90s. And he said, you know, that was a period of time for what I think it was the 90s. I'm I'm going to forget the exact periods, but I'm going to paraphrase what he said, because it was sort of this similar moment for me. But he said there was this period of time where he was writing and he didn't even know why he was doing it because he was it was so out of favor. Nobody was reading it. And then all of a sudden, voila, you know, his memos became read and people asked him questions. But he said he went through like this decade where no one asked him a thing. I think so, it may have been 25 years, literally. I mean, it was a very long time. I think that's right. So, I mean, that's resilience. You know, that's resilience to keep, you know, practicing your craft when nobody has an interest. So, if I look at our team in general, everyone's really passionate about stocks. I mean, that, you know, I don't feel like I've ever gone to work a day in my life. So, or at least since I've been in the investment industry. One of the things that's very distinctive about you and your approach that I found very thought-provoking myself is, is the amount of empty space you leave in your life to think and read and write so you can distill your ideas. And I, I wrote to you about three weeks ago and I said, you know, Laura, I'm kind of embarrassed, but I, I put myself in this impossible situation where I, I said, because of my perennial inability to say uh, no to anything, I've taken on way too much. And here I am, I'm always preaching to people about the importance of reducing complexity and I'm constantly piling on ever greater amounts of complexity in my, in my life. So I said, could we postpone our interview, which was supposed to be about three weeks ago? And you wrote back to me, not a problem at all. I'm wide open the next few months. And you said, that's intentional. It's just stocks and writing. And that struck me as very typical of you to be so focused on giving yourself enough time to read, to write, to think, to, to analyze stocks, to visit companies. Can you talk about this mindset of very intentionally leaving your time less cluttered? Because it strikes me, I, I th- I've been thinking about this a lot recently, and this strikes me as just inordinately important and something that I'm failing to do the whole time. I come from a culture where it's hard to say no as well. Like we, you know, it, I grew up in this place where you just, you want to help people. I think for me, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, COVID-19 was this horrible thing and, and almost this personal great thing uh, for an introvert. You know, it was introverts paradise, right? Like offices never work for me. Office works for people who I think when, when people are afraid of you, office works. When you're not approachable, office works, right? But when... People are not afraid of me. They've never been afraid of me. So you put me in an office, you know, and I've got someone will come to talk to me, you know, every however many minutes, right? And they say every time you get interrupted, that's 24 minutes that it takes your brain to get back to focused on the task at hand, right? I mean, and we know that we know that about ourselves too. Like when we're interrupted, it takes a long time to get back to that state. And so, yeah, I mean, I, Try not to take on very much. I've learned to say no. I stay to myself a lot. I moved again during COVID. You know, Utah has become, I love Utah. I love the friends I've made there, but it's become a a more popular investment destination. And I don't want to be called, you know, by a broker every day, even though some of them are my greatest friends, you know, with a company coming through that doesn't fit my process. I just don't think that's a good use of time. So I'm very intentional about focusing on the stocks that we screen, 
reading about the environment that those companies are operating in. So if it's a Japanese company, I want to know a lot about Japan. And then writing for me helps me invest, helps me sort of purge my brain. So it's, it's writing is synergistic to investing. So for me, so. I remember during COVID, Laura, you said to me that you had rented this small house in a very quiet part of Idaho that had a stream in the garden. And I think you said to me, I, I have three outfits and 45 books. And, <laughs> and it struck me, Bill Miller was much the same. I, I remember him once saying to me, yeah, COVID was just great for me. Like nobody bothered me and I could just sit around reading. And for me as well, I felt kind of guilty about it. But, you know, I love my family and my wife started stopped working in an office and started working from home. So I was much less isolated because I was working at home and my kids came back from college. So they were at home. It was kind of wonderful. It was like I could be at home, see my family when I wanted, and the rest of the time just kind of read and write and think. It was amazing, that reduction of complexity. Introvert's paradise, right? I mean, because the funny thing about investing, this is a Buffett comment, but he always says, you know, stocks are the easy thing. People are the hard part, right? And so, you know, you, and I think that that's true for introverts and our industry attracts a lot of that personality type. But yet, you know, the, the whole corporate culture, right, is, is corporations are typically led by extroverts. So there's this element of sort of misery or distraction that just doesn't work for my personality. So I've, I've kept up. We have an experienced team as well. I think it's different when you have or you're mentoring or training young people. They need more physical time but with a, with a a team that's really passionate about stocks and driven, I don't need to sort of bully them into doing their work. They want to do their work. So, um, yeah, I, I keep my calendar pretty clean. So Plus, I, I'm a miserable husband. I don't think I'd still be married. My husband told, you know, if I put too much on my calendar, I'm a miserable person. So. And, and your, your husband is often in a different country, right? I mean, I remember your husband, Rob, who, when we first spoke, was handling sales for baseball and the like for a big company and would, would go around Asia. He would be based in Kyoto. You would be based for months a year in Utah, and then you would go off on trips together. So you'd sort of structured your life in a way. So you, you didn't have kids. You had a husband who was incredibly supportive of your work, but wasn't around the whole time. Yes. I mean, that we did that right six months before. I think I told you six months before COVID, we downsized. We said, why do we need this much space? You know, like you're always on the road. I'm on the road. I can go to an office. And then we ended up COVID hits and we're in a loft condo with both of us doing night calls. Right. Like it was not a conducive environment for work, which is why we rented the house in Idaho. And and we didn't stay there. We should have locked that house down because it was funny. We were there early and it was cheap because no one was traveling. It was just the beginning. And then the prices went through the roof because everyone sort of did this staycation sort of thing. So, but it was, it was, you know, really empty and lovely. And, you know, I read a lot about it. And I, I, I mean, I really went back to basics. I don't, I don't know if a lot of people said this about that time frame, but I really went back to basics. I read all these things that you had wanted to get into, but just didn't get to, you know, about companies. You, you also, over the years, you, you've had this ability to detach yourself physically from the noise, right? So, so I remember you once telling me that you would go every year to 
a, a, a little island off Australia that only had eight houses. Can, can you talk about that? Because it seems consistent, right? You, you have this little condo in Utah that you downsize to. You, you have, I think, a 900 or 1,000 square foot of uh, uh, home in Kyoto. So like these are, you, you, you've managed to withdraw from the noise actually physically. Tell me, tell me about Australia and how that kind of this, this island sort of embodies that ability to give yourself the peace to think and read and write. I was raised on Thoreau, so, you know, this sort of anti-materialism or I guess it's like cheap life as simple as possible so that you can actually enjoy your time uh, or focus on the things you want to focus on, whether that's, you know, achieving a sort of financial level of comfort that allows you to focus on what you focus on, whether you, you have commented on this, you know, I constructed a life, you know, I have a partner you know, that was very intentional. It allows me, I mean, not a lot of people, right, can disappear from the U.S. for months at a time, you know, without having some sort of commitment back home they have to get to. I told you recently you should read, I just read that Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, which was absolutely wonderful. He's constructed a life that's very similar to mine. And I didn't, you know, you don't look at the biography at the end, at the beginning, and I, I was reading this and I'm like, boy, this guy could be like my twin, you know? And then it turns out he was from North Central Kansas, you know, as I went back and read the book. But you, you would love it because it has all your favorite authors, you know. It's just littered with all these beautiful thinkers. But yes, you know, yeah, for sure I constructed this life of, of being able to get away. And Badera, it's called Badera. I shouldn't give that away. There's actually a really expensive hotel on the other side of the island that I've never set foot on. And you can't get to it from these houses because you've probably been, it's Australia, you'd get bitten by a poisonous spider or snake, you know, going through the jungle. But the island itself, you know, you have a cell tower that's far away, you have no internet, you have these sort of houses that you have to, you, the boats only come every five days. So you carry your stuff, your groceries, and you get off at the house. And I carry books and some food and, you know, and I read and meditate, and, and it's when I typically write a quarterly letter, or, but it's really lovely for thinking. I think when I was writing my book, I, I don't know if I stole this phrase from someone else or if I came up with it myself, where I talked about intentional disconnection from technology, and it seemed like you were a very good embodiment of that. And, and then you and I were discussing the interview that I did recently on the podcast with Pico Aya, who talks about not having... A uh, who who also lives in Kyoto much of the year, who talks about not having a cell phone and not actually using uh, his computer in the morning and just answering email for like an hour and a half every afternoon. And other than that, he's he's writing by hand and he's traveling constantly to report. But it's a very quiet, very simplified life. I, I'm curious how you use technology in general, how how you protect yourself against this sort of this barrage of inputs from phones and computers and Bloomberg terminals and the like. I haven't picked up my phone and I can't tell you the last time I picked up. I have like a few select people who I've marked, you know, where I'll pick up my phone, but I do not randomly pick up my phone and I haven't done that for years just because, you know, we mainly I'm getting sold. I mean, I am an ardent believer in everything Munger and Buffett say about how many times you get sold in this industry. So I avoid that at all costs, especially at firm or science. Can you imagine what we'd be sold, you know, at a couple hundred million in that management? So 
So I, I tune all that out. Um, all of my, I have a filtering system for all of my emails. So I've created a filtering system where only a few email a day actually come through to my inbox. And then I selectively go in at the end of the day and I read research. I don't read trading emails because I, I don't find most trading. I don't find insightful, right? The original research report might be insightful, but the trading memo isn't all that insightful to me. And then, you know, I really block a lot of email and I only read it at certain times of the day. And yeah, and I sh- should mention, like when I talk about building models, we have harnessed technology as well to our advantage. So we have incredible tools for a firm, you know, our size. So we have this, um, I would say this sort of, I guess I want to call it like a CFA caliber model where we enter our tick and ticker and our initials and you hit a button and it literally pulls in all the historic data for a company. I can do, I can compare and contrast, like I can enter a ticker, multiple tickers and compare and contrast this business to any business I want in the world on any metric I want. And then all my time is built on the forward thinking in the model. I spend, spend very little time thinking about the past. So you're not a Luddite. You're using technology in ways that are very powerful for you, but you're not letting the technology own you. Yes, quite sophisticated, actually, in our u- utilization of technology. So, I mean, when we early on, when we had, you know, consultants come in and look at our technology, they were pretty amazed by what we had accomplished. So, I mean, we literally, I can build a model, a five-year forward model uh, in 20 minutes with incredible amounts of detail, cash flow, balance sheets, income statements, competitor valuations, evaluation, the drivers. It's, it's pretty incredible, the technology we've built and use. And then we, I mean, we have the screens that we use for monitoring the portfolio, so I, I sort of, I think we try to eliminate all things that are not things where we need our intellect or our thinking. <laughs> so we try to get rid of all tasks that are very monotonous and not thinking tasks. And, and you're not being bombarded by day-to-day news either. It's, it seemed to me that you, you, from what you've told me in the past, you weren't spending a lot of time reading news updates on your Bloomberg terminal or even reading daily newspapers, you are much more focused on books. And I I remember you once saying to me, uh, you wrote to me in 2021 and you said, I generally tune out CNBC unless I see someone like Greenblatt or or Marx hop on air. I thought that was really interesting that you're, you're actually very consciously taking yourself away from, I, I guess what Nick Sleep would call this very perishable information that kind of has a very short shelf life. Yes. Well, and I think because everything went up in a period of low interest rates or declining interest rates, that sort of short-term thinking or like bombardment with liquidity comments, that even became more pervasive, right? So getting away from it, completely ignoring it became more important. Sometimes our colleagues have more insight into our personality than than we do ourselves. And I asked my colleague once, I said, you know, why, why is it, you know, I, I don't get as much anymore from reading, you know, this in this report or, and he's like, well, you've, you know, you're, you're more senior now than most of these 
things that you're reading, you're focused on the longer term, they're focused on getting you to trade, right? Everyone, there's invest, the industry of investing is absolutely in opposition to investing, right? The industry of investing is to get us to trade and to buy something. And in my mind, being a good investor is doing, not doing those things, right? So I'm always trying to not do those things. And to not do those things, you really have to tune out what you're being sold on a day-to-day basis. You're also tuning out social media, right? I mean, I, I, I think I, I see you a little bit on LinkedIn occasionally sharing something that someone like Blake has written. I don't see you on Twitter at all. I think we used to be friends on Facebook. Now, I looked yesterday to see, see you. I think your Facebook account disappeared. Someone else actually <laughs> has stolen the name Laura Garretts on Facebook. Uh, uh, is, is that right? Like you kind of consciously disappeared from social media in a way also because you're moving away from this sort of ephemeral distractedness. It's tricky because, you know, what is so difficult, and I'm sure you feel this challenge as well, is that we think that might be the future direction, Direction, you know, particularly LinkedIn, of where content is being read, right? You can see that eyeballs are going to LinkedIn and not to your personal website, right? So, I mean, you do want to get your content to, to where, or your thinking to where it is being read. So, I think that's one area where we're constantly bound. I personally battling what should, how, how should I approach this, you know, because um, I don't think I'm particularly good at being on social media, media every day. I mean, I enjoy, I actually go to read, you know, I, I go to read a lot on social media because I, in some senses, like, at least I know who's publishing what and I can trust the information. So if, you know, with LinkedIn, if you're publishing something, I can trust it. Half the time when you Google something, you don't know if you can trust the information or not. So I did use LinkedIn for that purpose, but I'm not, I would have probably never been on Facebook or Instagram to begin with. One of them, I think my friends forced me at some point when we were out to dinner, you know, we're going to put you on social media. So I probably had all of three posts. I think what's interesting is as I, try to figure out like what I need to learn from you and kind of clone from you. Like one, one of the things is that you've shifted very much towards what I, what I call in the book, the art of subtraction. Like you're, you're prioritizing what matters. And I, I, I remember when, when we met, um, I think it was in 2019, you and I had um, lunch at this sushi restaurant I love in New York, Katsuhana, which is still one of my favorite restaurants on earth. And you talked to me about Stephen Covey's paradigm of big rocks and and little rocks or gravel. And I, I was looking at it last night at, at this video because I wasn't really familiar with this concept. And it shows this, this video of this woman trying to, you know, she's got a jar full of this gravel. And on top of it, she's trying to jam these big rocks, each of which represents like a major long-term goal or a priority, like her family or her biggest clients or some big career opportunity. And then Stephen Covey says to her, well, so now take this other jar. and she he tells her to put the big rocks in at the bottom and then he pour, and then she pours these little pieces of gravel around the rocks. And you said to me, I, I'll, I'll call you back to, to you, you said, I think one of the things I'm good at over the long haul is getting rid of the little rocks. I have very few distractions. I just screen stocks, travel, come back, build models, build portfolios, outsource the stuff I'm terrible at. It's so true today. I mean, and I still think of that Covey class and our lunch all the time because we were talking about books. I think you had just started your book club 
Yeah. At that point in time, and you'd ask, you know, there's always a question when you're with someone and sits with you for a long time, and your question about team sat sat with me for a long time too. You know, why do you have a team of people? And I think there's one, you know, succession issues. There's two, like you know, everybody on our team is sort of different and good at different things, and and you know, so we're better as a whole than we are as one, but. Yeah, I mean, I still think that art of subtraction is just, it gets more important by the day, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're just bombarding. And it's very, it's very difficult because if you're reasonably successful, you get more and more complexity in your life and you're more and more reachable. So you get more and more opportunities, more and more feedback from people who are really nice and who you want to reply to because you don't want to be rude to them. And so you just have this, this, accelerating complexity and then on top of it all of the information that's coming in at you constantly so pico io was saying that um we get more information in a single day than shakespeare got in his lifetime and and so just the complexity so it seems to me that one of the keys to a successful and happy and abundant life is actually to be extremely clear about what matters to you what's really important, what's really adding value and what you're here for. And then really to have the discipline to reduce the other stuff. And, and the reason I, I'm emphasizing it and saying it out loud is because I don't do it. <laughs> I mean, I've been good in that. At, I mean, starting, I mentioned this to you, starting a business is not the best thing for like the art of subtraction, right? I mean, because you get drawn into so many things that you're not particularly you know, excellent at doing yeah. so <laughs> or have an interest in doing. So that part at first, I don't think I managed that well in the very, in the very beginning. And then I've gotten better at managing it. You know, I've got, I've partnered with people, I think where we all complement each other really well. So we're, we're each good at different things. And, um, I mean, you, you've probably seen Blake is an exceptionally good writer. He probably gave me credit where credit wasn't due and that, in that white paper but yeah you know we have a team of writers too so even things like quarterly lettering we can almost seamlessly move it from one person to another without the the voice being lost so yeah i think it's just critical to be i've gotten back to even the team agrees that the things i'm the best at are looking at stocks reading you know reading which helps me look at stocks and writing so we i'm very much focused on those things today. I think the other thing I do reasonably well is talk to clients because I care about them. And but yeah, I don't know. I one of my books on my recent trip to Japan. I just read his finished Pico's new book, uh, The Half Million Life. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's so, a lovely book. <laughs> yeah, it's just brilliant. It's about all these different cultures, how they, you know, I guess you know, in conflict in ways, but all trying to pursue the same goal, which is back to your point about they're focused on what is paradise, finding paradise. And so it's sort of this, everyone has the same target, but they're getting there in different ways and different belief systems. And so I think, you know, keeping your eye on the ball or on that target is really important. I told you, like, one of my favorite books is Snow Country. And in the beginning of the book starts with, you know, there's this train going through a tunnel. And it talks about going through this long tunnel into Snow Country. And so I'm always tr- sort of trying to find that Snow Country, right? I mean, Japan is this beautiful place for writing because it's, you've got this 
white, you know, it's the snowiest place on common earth. So you have this sort of white cleansing palette there <laughs> for creativity. <laughs> so it's this great place for the imagination. He also talks a lot, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase him here, but he talks about like, we all have the same amount of time, right? Time is the same for, for all of us, but each one of us uses our time differently. And, you know, that's such a profound statement to me because I want to spend my time subtracting the things I don't like. <laughs> I want to do the things I absolutely love because time is finite. So when you look forward now, I mean, you're, you're about the same age as me, right? Maybe a little yeah. younger. I'm 55. Really close. Yeah. You want. So, so when you look forward and you think, I've, I've, I've got to subtract all the nonsense, all the stuff I don't care about. Here's what I really care about. Like, what's your, what's your sense when you look at the next 30, 40, 50 years of like, here's, here's what will actually make this a really successful and happy and abundant life? He's great. You know, what's funny, you know, when I was young, I used to look forward a lot more like that. You know, I was a very poor, I was planning my retirement at age five, you know, like I'm <laughs> saving and, you know, thinking about retirement. But today I'm actually very content in the moment, you know, uh, it's funny, more so than I've ever been in my life. And I think it's because of the removal of all those sort of things that I didn't enjoy. So, you know, it's funny. I, I, I don't know. That's sort of a Zen way of being too, right? It's just being in the moment. So I'm really happy just celebrating the moments today versus, you know, again, always kind of thinking about what is what does retirement look like, right? Because, I mean, I think if anything, that's another thing COVID taught us, right, is we may not have, you know, 30, 40 years. Now, I'm not, you know, this isn't some YOLO, you know, mentality, but it's definitely, you know, you know, it's amazing how we evolve as thinkers over time or as human beings. And do you think the meditation that you've done and studying Zen, and I, I remember you went to, Tibet when you had a sabbatical at, at Wasatch and you were going to Tibetan temples yeah. and like, has that helped you to rewire yourself so that you're more capable of being in, in the present without just fixating on the future the whole time? I think being in some of those cultures that are better at being in the moment is really helpful, right? I don't know, you know, you look at just, I mean, this is a bigger topic altogether, but you look at the proliferation of technology in our mental health. I mean, they seem to go side by side, right? And so going to these places that live a different way, to me, at least teaches me how to balance the best of our culture and the best of theirs, you know? So I think so. If anything, I don't know how often you, I think you've, I've heard you say before, you know, you've tried meditation, but, you know, Soto, sitting, you know, Soto Zen is so uncomfortable. If anything, it makes me appreciate everything else during the day. So. <laughs> how, how much do you sit and meditate? Uh, in Japan, I, mean, I have a like, place in Japan, you know, on cushion. My, my place in Japan is not big. And as you know, my husband works out of it part time. So it's also kind of this, you know, hybrid. It was hybrid before hybrid was cool. But um, yeah, we have a, like a pillow and I'll just go sit and kind of cleanse my mind for you know, 20 minutes a day. And it might not be through you know, actual meditation, but a cook, cooking to me is also, you know, a form of Zen practice. So I don't know if you've ever been making a sauce or something and your husband comes up and asks or your wife or whatever, your kids come up and ask a complex question. I mean, it's impossible to answer a question while you're like, 
trying not to get lumps in whatever it is you're making. So my, my cooking capabilities extend to toast and oatmeal. That's about <laughs> as far as we go. So that that's one of the forms of complexity I've I've removed from from my life. I'm, I sort of, but I I think a lot about these things that you're wrestling with, and it feels like you've you've done a a really good job of prioritizing what's really important to you, subtracting complexity, focusing focusing on the things that really matter, and then just kind of plugging away. Well, I think when I met you, you know, you, I was in that point in my life where, you know, you are, you, you know, you, your investment style is in, you are popular and in demand. And as a consequence, you're exhausted. And so, mm. like, you know, and you're trying to, I was also at the point in my life where you're sort of coming into this sort of, I don't know whether you want to call it like bigger, per, what is the bigger purpose <laughs> of life? So, I was in sort of this period of transition. I think I've learned, I, I've actually, yes, I was coming to this, you know, conclusion that you practice the art of subtraction. I've gotten even better at it as the years have gone by. So it's, um, yeah, you know, you can, it's really nice to be kind of content in the moment. Is there any final thought you'd like to leave us with before I, I let you go? Because I know I've exhausted you with uh, a million questions. Oh no, I've I've enjoyed your. I mean, I actually forwarded your Pico uh, Iyer podcast on to a bunch of people I know because, I, I mean, it's just so good. It it, it got me. I had kind of gotten out of some of my practices during COVID, and it really got me back into this sort of you know intentional reading practice. And you know, I, so I really appreciate what you're doing, and you know, the deeper thinking you're enabling us all to enjoy i really enjoy your podcast anyway i forwarded it on it was great uh thank you i don't have anything to add <laughs> well it's been a it's been a real pleasure laura and i i've been a great admirer of what you've done with ron Dure and just with your career and the way the way in many ways you've you've structured your career out of these passions for for continuous learning constant reading obsession with books, obsession with travel and discovering other cultures and obsession with stocks. It's a kind of beautiful thing to see the way you've aligned your life around these, these passions. Well, I'm, I'm envious. I mean, I'm not, I try not to like be envious, you know, anymore in my life, but you wrote such a beautiful book and it's something I've always wanted to do. There is an area where I have not subtracted enough to accomplish what you accomplished. So uh, thank I'm you. Truly a beautiful book. Well, I, I figure you'll end up writing a book at some point, but uh, I know you're a very good writer, but I, I sort of figure it's so busy doing, you know, chasing around the world and visiting companies and like, it's not a bad thing just to keep collecting string for the book, which I, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure will come out at some point in the next decade that, that you'll work maybe, on. Maybe, maybe. I, I would love to do that, but, um, but anyway, I just want to congratulate you on all your success and the wonderful book you wrote. So. Uh, Thank you. I'm so glad you were in it. And I look forward to many more conversations in the years to come. Thanks so much, William. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. All right, folks. Thanks so much for joining me for today's conversation with Laura Gerritz. If you'd like to learn more from Laura, you may want to check out my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, where I wrote about her at some length in a chapter titled High Performance Habits. I'll be heading to Switzerland in a week or so to visit my old friend Guy Speer, and I'll be interviewing him at his home in the mountains for a future episode of the podcast. 
In the meantime, please feel free to follow me on Twitter or X at WilliamGreen72 and do let me know how you're liking the podcast. I'm always really glad to hear from you. This morning, I was especially moved to receive a message from a devoted listener named Samuel, who's currently serving as a soldier in a very dangerous war zone. Apparently, he's been downloading the podcast and listening to it during calmer moments when he's whiling away the time. Samuel wrote to me, I'll wager there is a good chance that I'm your only listener who's had to go back 15 seconds to hear some pearl of wisdom because a nearby tank or explosion has been too loud for me to hear. So I wanted to send my very best wishes to Samuel and to any of our other listeners who are out there going through particularly difficult and perilous times, his hoping for the return of peace. In any case, I look forward to being with you all again very soon. For now, stay well and stay safe. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to follow Richer, Wiser, Happier on your favorite podcast app and never miss out on episodes. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. 